When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello, my name is Geraldine McKenna and I'm from our latest secondary school in Cookstown. And uh, my project here is investigating uh, different levels of calcium and the effect of it on the laying hen. And... Uh, well, I'll tell you what I've done. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I used a control group of four hens, and I had another group of four hens on the low calcium. Uh, the standard ration is three and a half percent calcium, and the low calcium ration is one point one percent calcium. And you can see here the effects of it. You know, decreased egg size and uh, uh, decreased eggshell strength and. Soft the eggshell, in fact, collapses eventually yeah, that's right. through there's, lack of there, calcium. Yeah, it's very, and uh, this shows that the, you know it's really essential. Calcium is really essential to the eggshell. That's what you set out to prove, and that's what you proved. Yes, it's proved. Yes, and statistically as well. Well, did your hens suffer in the process? Well, they noticed rubbery beaks, and their toes spread out, you know, and they molted. But that was really all, you know. And after this experiment was over, you brought them back to life and vigour, presumably by yes. feeding them plenty of calcium. Yeah, and uh, they recovered. <laughs> Patrick Grady, Community School of Alcara, County Donegal. And what's your project, Patrick? Twin solenoid motor. It works off a battery, a DC voltage comes in, DC current comes in. And when the T-piece is in a position here, it engages this solenoid. There's two solenoids. This solenoid is engaged, it will pull and change the T over to the other solenoid. Therefore, it's engaged. We'll keep moving like this. It's a bit noisy, but that could be cured. Also, another useful solenoid is the... Well, wait now. Is is this a a new invention as far as you're concerned? Well, as far as I know, I don't know if anyone else had made one of these before. And what practical application can you say for it? Well, I can see it driving simple things that ordinary motors can drive. Static motors rather than uh, yes. mobile ones. Yes, ordinary motors. I can sit like this. Belt can be attached to the crank wheel. Yes. Or other clog wheels can be attached on it, and it will drive it. Just the same as any simple ordinary motor. And um, what will the cost of driving be? Just an ordinary 12-volt battery drives it. It's very easy in current. It takes two amps current for each solenoid. Would you intend to patent this? No, I don't think so. I'm a schoolboy and I don't have time for things like that. It's just a school project. I didn't know need um come with the Mercy Clinical to Country Corp. This is a very interesting project here, is Eileen. Um, the habits and non habits of a bovine herd. What were some of the things you came up with in it? Um, I established that there was such a thing as society status in a herd of cows. I watched them as they went out to the field every day and I established that one cow was always in front. And um, she was had established herself as the superior member of the herd and um, I then examined her temperament and it was nervy one. When she was touched by humans she was very nervy and um, I didn't record her milk yield and it was very inconsistent as you can see in the graph and then I 
discovered that there was also a back marker. That is the one that's always the last going, going a gate or going from field to field. And she was very quiet and um, very consistent milker. And also looked at the background of the leader. And she'd been reared at home, which had given her time, herself time to establish herself within the herd. Whereas the other one had been bought in England. And therefore she found it hard to settle down when she was switched to our farm. And then um, I discovered that if you ever watched a group of people going in the gate, you know, they move in two semicircles. Whereas if you watch a herd of cows, they move in a uniform rectangle. And um, this seems a much more practical way of moving than what humans do. And then um, I discovered that by pure uniformity and consistency, you can condition a cow to um, react to human voice. You know, I got this cow and um, every time it was, uh, it came to a feeding time. I called her name Skippy. And after five days, I got a very positive response. She came towards me. And then I stopped this uh, process for two months. And when the two months had elapsed, I once again uh, resumed this process. And she again remembered the name. And then um, I decided that I'd play music, see what it affect their milk yield. And therefore, um, out of 40 cows, there was five that weren't affected. The rest of them were, with an average of two pounds increase with the, uh, when the music was played, rather than when it wasn't played. An increase of what? Of two pounds of milk. And um, then I, decided, I said that maybe it's the weather that's causing this increase, or maybe the grazing. So um, I housed tin cows. And I gave them both, I gave all of them the same amount of feeding and the same conditions every day. And I still got an average increase of about two pounds. So then I decided what kind of music would bring them better increase. So I played um, one melodious tune. And I played it for about five days and I got an average increase of um, four pounds. Whereas um, when I played, you know, rock music, I'd only increase about three pounds. Uh, my name's Paul Nolan, and uh, I've come from my Park College, Kildalkin. What's your project? It's on a, a new meteor shower, uh, which I think occurred during the months of August. 19, uh, I observed it during 1976 and 77, and uh, at this time of year there was no other project, uh, or no other um, meteor shower uh, recorded in any books that I had read on it. Was it a certain segment of the sky that you s yes, uh, watch constantly? Yes, yes uh, up here uh, on this chart here, I show the point from the sky, which is between Nearsa Minor and Draco, uh, which th they came from, and in the manner of a meteor shower. Well, do you think this is something that other people have not noticed? Uh, well, the meteors themselves from the sh shower... Uh, might have been noticed by some people, but weren't uh, taken in as a shower. But uh, they came in the manner of a shower and might not have been noticed before because the meteors mightn't have been there before. They might have only gathered into an orbit around the sun to intersect a sect of the Earth each year after that, from 1976-77. Will you say you observed this first in 1976? Yes. And then 12 months later you looked for it again? Yes. How long did it last? Uh, eight days. Eight, eight to nine days. Uh, in 1976 it was uh, eight days. In 1977 it was nine days. I looked from the day before in 1977. After the day I noticed this in 1976. 
Well, have you drawn this to the attention of astronomers generally? Uh, yes, the two astronomers mostly because they'd be uh, uh, who'd be interested in it or people studying meteorotics. Uh, Declan Murray and I go to school at Marymount College, Carrick and Shannon. Declan, your project relates to trying to save cantilitrum. Is it your native county? Yes. What's the big problem? Drainage. 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 Farms are overgrown with rushes and they're not drained properly. So uh, we decided that we'd set out to see if there was enough information available for the farmers to drain their land properly. And is there? There is, yeah. But at what cost to the farmers? Well, it's... uh, I wouldn't really know. It's it's very dear, though. It's roughly about... Uh, for a farm about 35 acres, I'd 40,000, something around that, to drain it. 40,000 pounds? Yeah, because you have to use mole drainage. I thought the big problem in Leitrim was the uh, subsoil, the marl, as they call yeah, it. Yeah, daub, yeah. It's the problem, you see. You, no drainage you're working at other than mole drainage, because you have to crack the soils at the side, and um, it won't work unless you... Uh, when you crack the soil and you have to put gravel chips in the drain or else the drain will close in after a few, a year and a half and you'll have to get another one done. And uh, when you, it, It's quite expensive though. And, it, it, and it, it has to be done to virtually the whole county, does it not? Yeah, virtually the whole county. My name is Anne Keating and I go to Santa Sabina um, in Sutton. And I did this project because um, I love trees and I hope to do... Um, I hope to pursue a career in forestry. And there's a park beside us, and they had 153 elms in the park of different species. And um, I, f- I did a survey on the percentage that were diseased, and I found um, 18 were diseased. And one of the species, um, almost Copinifolia, um, I probed, you know, there was 45, 45 of these um, in the park, and none of these were diseased. That proves that they are resistant. And then, this is one particular strain of elm, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yes. And then I discussed biological control. I think that this combined with um, a strict sanitation program seems to be the only answer. And the biological control would be the itch Newman fly um, as this eats the bark beetle because the other methods of control, such as insecticides, um, like they, they're only practical on a large scale. Um, program and it depends on where the conditions for the use of them and then systemic fungicides they're very expensive and then they don't always work and there are some um, resistant strains of alum that have been um, discovered but these sometimes are not as picturesque or they can be more susceptible to other kinds of alum disease and then I compared the weather charts um, to statistics of disease trees and it is known that um, hot weather um, does cause the disease to spread more rapidly because of transpiration and the fungal spores are brought more quickly up to the leaves. But I, I, pro- I showed this by the statistics I found in between 1975 and 76 and the weather um, reports of 1975 and 1976. This uh, Newman fly that you suggest could be a, a possible solution, is that found or not? No, well, it's mainly in um, the United States. They're um, doing more um, research into the possibility of this. It's mainly um, America that are involved with this fly. And this fly actually feeds on the... Ellen Bark beetle. Yeah, there's two kinds of the bark beetles. There's um, scolitis, scolitis, 
and scolitis multistratus. The, um, two kinds of disease. Seamus Fanning of the Villasale College, Waterford. Yes, tell me, Seamus. Well, the pyramid has been in our midst for centuries, and really we've never noticed the effects to which it can be put. So we've had a lot of information, but it has been lost over many centuries during the Dark Ages, which were ages of persecution by the Christians. So we've had to start from scratch really again and build up our knowledge of the pyramid. Why should the pyramid have special force and special power? It's really a mystery because we don't know where they come from, you know. We've, we know that they have effects on certain substances, but we don't know why, really. It's all to do with the atmosphere, light and, all, and direction. And this is what creates this mummifying effect? Yeah, it's, it's to do with the concentration of power at certain points, and that mummifies various objects, for instance, the king's body or meat. So tell me about your experiment. Well, I've worked on milk mostly, and I've worked on one experiment with cream. This was a very interesting experiment because I expected to get cheese from the cream within a period of time. And within a period of over eight days, from the time I put the cream into the pyramid to the time I came back and checked it again, I had a cheese, a very rich cheese, which had a very rich odour from it. While I also put um, a jar outside the pyramid to compare with the one inside, and it had gone very, very sour. So that was a very interesting experiment in itself. Um, I also but is this not something you could sell to the milk companies? Well, if they're interested, I mean, I'm here for the next Have you ever days. heard of a milk company experimenting with this kind of thing? On the continent, they do a lot about... They do a lot with it, but not in Ireland, With really. pyramids? With pyramids, yeah. And your pyramid is simply made of plastic sheeting, is it? Yeah. It's just a simple construction. And you put the milk in, the cream in under the that... Cream goes in, the cream goes in under the apex at exactly one-third the height from the midpoint of the base and it's here that the power more or less concentrates. That's what gives us the effects that we get on them. And uh, there is no physical reason why this should be so, that you know? No. Why it should be one-third from the base, for example? Well, the light comes through at different angles. One light can come through the walls of the pyramid and it will be reflected around the pyramid at different angles to the walls. And it just seems to concentrate around a third up from the base. You know, it seems to have something to do with gravity. I'm Donald MacDonald from Crescent College Comprehensive in Limerick. How long have you been coming here, Donald? This is my fifth year entering. How uh, have you done before? I've picked up a few awards. I was runner-up last year, and I won junior chemistry the year before, and uh, highly commended the year before that. And the first year was a bit of experience. <laughs> so it's been a progression? It has, A yes. happy progression happy for progression, you. yes. And what's your project this year? Well, this year's project is a study of the impact which discharge has on the biota of the Shannon River at Limerick. And it's just a, a long name for saying that I'm trying to see what the effects of pollution are on the ecology of the river. And I've done uh, biological and chemical monitoring and correlated the two of them to find what the effects are. The effects are. Were your previous projects on similar themes? 
Well, there were more on the chemical analysis side, but this year's, pro this year's project is definitely enlarged in the chemical side, but it's more of a biological monitoring than chemical monitoring. You've always been interested in the Shannon? Yes, well, the Shannon is, is right beside me, so it is, you know, it's been ready available to me. Have you had reaction from local people on your... Yes, um, the county council have been very interested in my work, and, um, well, not only that, but local people in the area have been interested. There are some people who have um, brought me out in boats and things like that to see the river and that. And uh, generally people show an interest in pollution, but they don't have shown enough an interest to do anything about it or be worried about it, really. How bad is it? Well, it's progressively, let's like say, it's not very bad. It's bad in spots. It's very bad in spots. But the dilution factor of the river seems to lessen the pollution uh, as leaving the town, which is to be expected. But it's progressively getting worse, and this can be seen by doing a project over four years. The population of Limerick now is around 60,000 people, with no sewage effluent at all. So that's all going into the river. When the population increases to 120,000, what are we going to have? The river is steadily getting worse. At some stages, uh, the river now, I've proved that the river now, at night time in the summer, is unsuitable for migratory fish. They cannot migrate up to the spawn. Do you point the finger at anyone for polluting the river? Well, yes, at ourselves. <laughs> because it's sewage discharge that is doing the main damage, that's doing the most damage. And um, technically, anybody who dumps sewage is, is violating the law, but we don't think about you know, we don't think about this when we're flushing our toilets or whatever it is. But everything that goes down that sewer, or down the sewer pipe, oil, or anything, is all going into the Shannon. And what, what we really need now is a sewage treatment in Limerick. The industrial effluents are there at the present, but with the new act, the Water Pollution Act of 1977, be, when this is implemented, it will stop water pollution from factories. Anyway, it'll make them, it, it regulates um, dumping of sewage, and you need licenses to dump now and all this. Do you intend to make science your living? Well, considering it now, I, I would, yes, but uh, well, I'm open to change, but I would like to work in limonology or bacteria or uh, marine biology. What are your chances of picking up a prize this year? Oh, well, there's a good chance as everybody else, but uh, well, I'd like to play. I'd like to uh, see what I can do anyway. Have see the judges been with you? They have, yes. I think they're away now to, dis to discuss the, <laughs> the findings. But so uh, you're at the keeping the fingers crossed Keeping stage. the fingers crossed the fight. <laughs> and Donald MacDonald kept his fingers crossed to some effect. He turned out to be the individual overall winner. Apart from the young scientists, many of their teachers and advisers were at the RDS in Ballsbridge early this month. I'm John Fortune from St Peter's College, Wexford. Um, this year, St Peter's College have a record number of young scientists here in the exhibition. In fact, I think the best represented school. We've ten particular projects and uh, one group project. Is it only your bright boys who come in to the RDS? Um, up to a few years ago, yes. Our bright um, physicians and chemists, etc. But um, because of the introduction of the group project, there is now a greater uh, interest in, you know, in things like sociology, how people live, etc. And that gives a chance to the less bright boys. But definitely in the strict sciences, it has to be the bright boys, I think. You say you have a big representation here, but that presumably is the tip of a rather large iceberg. Probably you had a lot of projects from a lot of people in your school, and you turned down a number. Yes. Well, in fact, as I'm not so sure of the number who went forward, but I think most of the boys, of the groups who went forward, are actually here today. I think maybe one who was working the project for the last few years decided to wait maybe for next year. I'm not so sure on that. But as a science teacher, how do you regard this? Is it worthwhile? Well, in fact, I don't teach science myself, but um, as a person studying sociology, 
and you know watch, watching the other things I think yes uh, a boy said to me last year who did the young scientist said to me no he said the most valuable thing I've done uh, during my living search uh, studies has been the young scientist in meeting people in especially here at the RDS especially the two public days on Saturday and Sunday having to talk to people and um, to put forward views and to deal with people it's not only great now but it's great when they go to look for a job when they go for interviews etc that they can um, stand their own in public. This is very, very important. It's, in other words, not just uh, a science, it's discipline training for life as well. Brother Corn from St Peter's, CBS, Craigan, Derry. You teach science, do you? Uh, science, geography, social studies. What do you think of this RDS venture? Uh, I think it's quite good. The Gerolingas have uh, put quite an amount of money and uh, expertise into the running of it. We've been coming down for five years now and the children have... There's something to aim for, to see what other boys and girls can achieve, boys and girls of their age group. Um, it's expertly put on, and it's also uh, a platform which they wouldn't otherwise have. Do you feel this is the kind of discipline that school children need at this age to see a project through on their own? Uh, yes and no. Like, just talking from my point of view, quite a number of um, children who were initially keen on the idea and took up the project dropped it after a certain amount of time, and some of them dropped them within the last six or eight weeks, uh, which isn't too nice for our lingus. But uh, the weaker type of kids, like I'm teaching in the secondary school in the north, secondary modern, they are they're not encouraged when they see the high standard. Um, Do you think it's only the the cream of the students here. Yeah, see, the yeah, whole yeah. system is taken up with that cream down here, you know, for examinations, etc. For example, the curriculum is geared towards the 10% or less who go on to university or training college. This type of, of um, exhibition here, uh, you could say, is geared in the same way towards the cream of the children who are good at maths, social sciences, uh, science generally. Would there be any interest in bringing the average student or the below-average student, would there be any interest in their work? Well, uh, for example, I would be, I have a hang-up on that. Um, like I teach in the school, mixed ability school, where we don't get the cream, even though we have done, uh, we have had a few prizes here, uh, I've been very well treated by our lingus, etc. But um, I think that's where a lot of frustration arises in education, where children, this 90%, if you like, they are not being catered for and they don't get the limelight and uh, the 10% seem to be get, get all that's going for them. Sister Margaret Mary, Convent of Mercy, Clannacilty. Francis Galvin, Presentation Convent, Bendon. What's your view of this uh, exhibition, this RDS thing? Well, I feel that um, it gives them a lot of experience even to come here. Now, I don't think it... Um, you know, takes over completely for the more exception, exceptional student because I feel that, well, if a pupil really wants to do something and is interested enough in doing it and working towards it, that that is experience for her, you know. So I have um, only one junior one here this year and like she's very quiet, but like I feel that this is doing something great for her, you know, even mixing in that. Yes, personality-wise. Personality-wise, uh, apart, apart from education. You know, she's from Cape Clear, so... A rather remote area. Yes, yeah. Again, I feel that it's great experience for them, and I feel that 
if they express any little bit of interest at all in doing a project that I encourage them and I find it very very difficult to say no even though at times I have to because this, the project mightn't be up to standard and the responsibility is really put back on us teachers to decide whether or not the projects are up to standard initially and I, again, I find that very difficult to do and I, again as I say I do encourage them to come along and I try to have a number of projects every year um, I find that a number of the projects are simply expositions of known fact with no great evidence of original thought. Would that be fair? That's probably true to a certain extent, but I feel that maybe in the junior sections that they could give um, more recognition, we'll say, to descriptive projects because, in fairness, you know, even to get the children interested in science, if they can't describe something... Well, you can't expect them to kind of go in and do scientific work on the whole thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So I feel that the descriptive ones are important as well, even though they don't seem to give that much recognition to them, I suppose, yeah, you know. that's true. I feel that um, um, Aer Lingus, I don't know if they're being fair uh, to the participants in general, because I feel an awful lot of projects are... It is obvious to me that the teachers have done an awful lot of work on them. And I, I'm wondering if Erlingas are... They must be aware of it. But I'm wondering in their adjudication, are they being fair to the exhibitors? Because uh, to me it's obvious where teachers' work is well, being shown. Certainly you know? I'll ask them on your behalf. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm speaking to two of the judges of group projects, Dr J.A. Scott and Mr P. Start. What was the general standard like, Dr. Scott? Well, this year I think the standard was as almost as good, as good as last year, I think it's fair to say. The winning projects, of course, did achieve a very high standard, but there is a tendency for a lot of the group projects, and this is a thing Mr. Stark would probably agree, uh, to be doing, tending to be doing the survey-type project, yes. and the scientific content of some of these survey ones we must query. This is what I was wondering about. It struck me walking around the exhibition that a great number of the exhibits are simply of known data presented, no original work involved. Yes, that is a very true comment. There are, of course, with the, the better presentations, original thought, original work, but there are a few comments that I think I would like to make. I think most of the competitors could improve their report writing and the tabulation of data. It's often quite a, a lengthy business for us to wade through vast amounts of material. A lot of improvement could be made there. In the presentation field? In, in the presentation, in their report books, more so than the actual large-scale presentation on their stands. I noticed, too, incidentally, that the standard of literacy was not terribly high in matches. Well, I will agree with you there, and I'm glad you said that. Yes. Uh, another point I think I would like to, to bring up is the question of, again, talking about these uh, survey-type projects. Uh, they gather an awful lot of data, but they don't seem to how to, to, to analyse the data, how to extract the information that is there. I think they draw conclusions from it which are not scientifically valid, I think, in some cases. I promised to put to you a point raised by a science teacher whom I spoke to who was wondering whether the judges uh, distinguished between what was a pupil's work and what in fact was a teacher's work. 
Well, this we certainly try to do. We, we question all the exhibitors. And I think, you know, by asking a few leading questions, you can very quickly find out the, child, the, the exhibitor or the child who, who knows his stuff and who's been taught. But, uh, I had a case in point in, in one of the prize winners in the group thing. Uh, I, I tried to uh, lead them slightly astray, but uh, they were very quick to see that I was going wrong and they, they brought me back. You know, and this shows that they understood the project. I, I did this deliberately. They were one of the top prize winners. And I tried to see, by just bringing them a little bit off the, off the topic, uh, would they follow me or would they actually come back onto the correct path, which they did. I was very delighted to see. The group projects embrace many scientific disciplines. Do you have great difficulty? Do you, as a chemist, push for a chemistry um, exhibit to win or does a physicist do the same? No, I don't think we do. Uh, we have uh, a very large panel of judges embracing all the various disciplines and I think we work quite well as a team in that way. Obviously, we're very happy to see a very good project within our own discipline, but certainly we don't uh, push unreasonably. We do have our squabbles when it comes to the uh, ultimate decisions, but they're always resolved in, one hopes, the, uh, the best possible way. There's one thing that perhaps would be worth saying, and that is that in many of the group projects, it it appears to us that there is one person that is really doing all the work and uh, there's a few passengers coming along. We would like to see all the participants in a group, each taking on a particular facet of the work, preferably to have a, a multidisciplinary approach to the project. This exhibition is becoming larger each year. In fact, this year they passed the 1,000 exhibitors, Mark. Is it becoming unmanageable? From your point of view? It's becoming more difficult every year. Um, I think there's two, two facets to this. I think that, that the trend is that the number of individual projects tends to be going down each year and the number of group projects is going up. And I think, uh, as judges, and I think our lingers will too, will want to investigate this and see is this a good thing. Um, the, the, the other question, which I, if I could just go back for a moment, on the question of numbers and groups, I, I think a case could be made for limiting the number of, of participants in a group. Some of these groups had the whole school working for them. And, you know, is, is this a scientific, is this the way science is done? I, I, I don't think so. I'm wondering, in view of a comment made by someone else, whether this might be a good thing, because his objection was that this gives an opportunity to the cream of the country to exhibit. But uh, what about the um, rather less qualified people below? Well, on this thing, of course, you have, I mean, there are two types of people. There's the extrovert person and the introverted person. And, of course, you tend to get the people who are slightly extroverted coming to the, to the uh, science exhibition. There is a very large number of people who are not exhibiting or are not putting forward projects. And I think this is an area, I think, that has to be looked into. And I think in, on, by some scientific bodies are beginning to look into this area to see can something be done for these people. Maybe the idea might be to have some sort of regional uh, exhibitions and, and then bring the, uh, the winners from the regionals up to a, a smaller but better uh, uh, exhibition here in Dublin, the All-Ireland, if you like, uh, of the science exhibitions. Uh, you're one of the individual judges, Mr. Wells. That is correct, yes. Now, how difficult is it to pick individual winners? It's not difficult uh, when you judge uh, the individual by the standard of the projects that are presented. You usually find that an individual or perhaps a number of individuals stand out because of their scientific endeavour. And in that way, it's fairly easy to pick the individual.
Where do you think this show can go from here? Has it reached the stage where it's going to become unmanageable with increasing numbers? I don't think so. I, I think that uh, already Aer Lingus have been reducing the number of uh, exhibits uh, uh, coming by asking the teachers to select out. And I think this may have to go on, perhaps on a, on a greater scale, to, in other words, only let the better ones come. Um, it's, I, I think that the... Uh, exhibition as it stands uh, because it's done so well on an international basis it is now recognized as having a very high standard and I think provided we can ensure that the high standard is maintained in the individual and group projects then I don't see why we would want to change the format at all. I asked Mr Wilson what he thought of the allegation of undue teacher participation. Well you can you can sometimes suspect that a pupil or an exhibitor has had a tremendous amount of teacher help in his project. But we don't think that provided the pupil really understands his project in depth, that this in any way takes away from his exhibition. And uh, you can often suspect teacher involvement, but I think this year on every occasion when we suspected teacher or parent involvement, we were able to make, satisfy the entire panel that that pupil really understood all the project in great depth, including mathematical formulae, calculations, etc., where appropriate. And therefore, whereas they may have had guidance, they really understood what the project was about. I think if it's anything like my family, it's the children would be teaching the parents anyway. In many cases, I think that's true. A new development this year was the Young Scientist Workshop, aimed mainly at science teachers. The opening speaker was Professor E.T.S. Walton, Ireland's most distinguished senior scientist and Nobel Prize winner. I asked him for his views on the exhibition. I've seen them now right from the start. Uh, I think it's a great thing to um, stimulate uh, interest in young people uh, because the, the whole future of the country really depends on development of, of technology and science. When you were at school age, were you interested in science subjects? Oh, yes. And yes. was there anything comparable at that time? There, I, I was fortunate in that I, I was in a school where there was, there was good science teaching. This can make a great difference to a, to a person. But um, way back in those distant days when I was at school, the... The Board of Intermediate Education did, did make a, a, a serious effort to encourage teaching of science in the schools. And uh, they, they had um, encouraged practical work. They, they used to send their inspectors around to inspect the, the practical work every year. But really, Ireland didn't have much of a reputation as a scientific nation, possibly until your name surfaced. Oh, no, no, that's not true at all. There have been some very, very, very distinguished... There have been isolated ones. Um, yes, um, isolated, but you must remember the, the population of, of, of Ireland is small in comparison to the population of some of the larger European countries, and you can't expect the same number of outstanding people. Do you think the standard is improving? I do indeed, yes. At all levels, including third level? Uh, y yes, I, I, I think it is. Do you think there's scope for much more improvement? Um, I, I'm not just sure what, what uh, 
you're, you're driving at here. Well, I'm wondering if enough money is given to the teaching of scientific subjects, for But um, you're, you're, you'll never get people to admit they have enough money. They're always looking for more. <laughs> but it's a question of, of whether uh, you talk about teaching over a wider area or whether you're talking about taking subjects to a more advanced level. Now, I'm not sure which you had in mind when you yes, asked Yes, well, what about both? Uh, well, I think both both uh, improvements have occurred. And it's a continuing process? I would hope so. Coming up to five o'clock on judging day, excitement mounted. Everyone gathered round the platform, and Jack Miller of Aer Lingus affected the introductions. Principal speaker was the Minister for Education, Mr. John Wilson. It is very gratifying to see the extent to which pupils have involved themselves in science projects, whether as individuals or in groups. Herr Lingus is to be commended once more for providing this stimulus to pupils and for giving them this opportunity to display their work. The encouragement and motivation of pupils to participate in this exhibition depends to a great extent on the teacher. The size, scope and quality of the entries is abundant proof of the educational value that teachers attach to it. They, however, are out of the limelight when the exhibition itself takes place. Their role confines them to the background. The pupils themselves are the principal investigators, with the teachers ever available to help, to challenge and to inspire. The Erlingus Young Scientist Exhibition 1978 was a success. Much of that success is due to the hard work of preparation, not alone by teachers and pupils, but by the organisers. Margaret Coyne is Education Officer with Erlingus. Well, it's a very pleasant task. It's a lot of work, but I enjoy it thoroughly. Uh, we work right through the year on the Young Scientists Exhibition. We start almost immediately after one exhibition is over. We publicise it again. We communicate with the teachers. We get around to as many schools as possible, and the whole thing really starts again in January. Isn't this striking while the iron is hot? Indeed it is, because there's a lot of interest shown in the exhibition by teachers and schools and individuals following on the exhibition uh, they read about it in the papers, they see it on television, they hear it in the radio, so there's a lot of interest at that time, and we think that's an important time to communicate with the teachers and the students. You circularise schools uh, in the 32 counties? We do indeed. We visit, we circularise all the schools in the 32 counties, and we visit as many schools as, as we can get to each year, also in the 32 county, all of the 32 counties. So it involves you and your staff in 
really around the year work? It does indeed, yeah. As I say, we publicise it in January. We, we produce a sort of an outline brochure giving the basic details of the exhibition. And then we follow that on in uh, May and June with the, more detail, the, the greater detail of, of the project work because a lot of the students like to have the long days during the spring and summer to work on their projects. They don't want to leave it until October, November. What about the logistics of this? Uh, actually bringing the children to Dublin, having to put them up, do you have to chaperone the girls? Or No, we're not quite into that. We, we leave that to, in the capable hands of the teachers and the parents. We do organise accommodation for them. For the last two years we've been organising accommodation in Jury's Hotel, which as you know is right beside the exhibition centre and the RDS, and it's very handy for teachers. Uh, we organise transportation for them with CIE and we organise the accommodation, but we leave it to themselves after that. Niall Weldon, the secretary of Aer Lingus, is the man in overall control. I asked him how long the exhibition had been running. This is the 14th year. We've just completed our 14th exhibition. The first one was opened in 1965 by Sean Lamas, and in that year we had 230 entries. And this year? This year we have over 1,000. It's been a progression all the way? A progression, with one exception. That was in 1968 when we had that awful foot-and-mouth disease when, in fact, we had uh, a very sharp uh, drop in numbers. But um, apart from that year, it has been growing steadily all the time. Well, a progression can't go on forever. Are you going to find yourselves in trouble? I wouldn't say in trouble. Um, growth uh, is a problem all the time. And uh, to date, we've, we've been able to um, address ourselves to it. And um, this year uh, has brought... Um, additional uh, problems. Um, we had 1,100 entries and uh, that's as much as the Royal Dublin Society accommodation can cope with. So it now seems that um, we may have to go into uh, a regionalisation of the exhibition. And um, Would this be provincial or would it be in all the principal cities of the country? I rather think it would be um, in about half a dozen cities um, throughout the island, and that would include Northern Ireland, of course. Following on the regional exhibitions, we would, of course, continue with the main exhibition in the uh, Royal Dublin Society each year. This involves you in quite an amount of money, both above and below the line. Yes, indeed. We have uh, an annual budget for our sponsorships, this is our main sponsorship, and um, we um, obviously have to uh, look at the cost each year. The, we uh, believe that we're getting extremely good value from the work that's been done by the exhibition, and um, it seems to us that um, for as long as the children and the teachers um, respond in the way they have responded over the past 14 years, we will feel obligated to keeping this thing going.